Welcome to The Systemic Way. In today's episode, we have the return of Dr. Travis Heath. Travis is a licensed psychologist and is an associate professor at San Diego State University, where he serves as chair of the Department of Counseling and School Psychology. His past work he's been involved with looked at shifting from a multicultural approach to counseling to one of cultural democracy that invites people to heal in mediums that are culturally near. His most recent work involves incorporating the work of black abolitionist scholars into psychotherapy, community healing and uprising. His writing has focused on the use of rap music in narrative therapy, working with persons entangled in the criminal justice system in ways that maintain their dignity, narrative practice stories as pedagogy, a co-created questioning practice called reunion questions and community healing strategies. He is co-author with David Epstein and Tom Carlson of the first book on contemporary narrative therapy released in June 2022 entitled Reimagining Narrative Therapy Through Practice Stories and Autoethnography. And that's the book that we will be talking about with Travis today. It was a fantastic opportunity to talk about the various chapters and the development of the book, but some of the key ideas that informed the book in this way of reimagining, as the title says, the learning and the practice of applying narrative ideas into the actual work that we do. So Julie, what are some of the main things that stuck out for you and resonated with you in, in, in the conversation with Travis, but also in reading the book? Yeah, well, I think like like I've said before, I, I always really appreciate having the opportunity to to speak with Travis and to ha- have his time to get a little bit. You you can't help but feel the passion that that he has for this topic. Um, I think one of the things that really stood out for me is the practice stories. So in this conversation, you you get to have you know, to hear a little bit in depth some of the stories that some of the other contributors to the book made. So that's Kate Ingemels, Sasha McCallum-Pilkington and Sani Paljaka. And you get to look and see the inner conversations of the therapists and the thoughts they're having whilst they're in practice, which I think offers something so special to you if you're a if you're a therapist um if you're someone who's interested in this in this work it sort of really guides you into the the process of what happens in a room so I think that's one of the things that stood out for me what are some of the things that stood out for you Cesar well the the kind of the the spirit of the book you know it was this Mm -hmm. kind of um invitation really to learning narrative therapy but I and I kind of understood it as well you know across the board really um in training and development of different approaches or just just training and learning skills in general from this kind of idea of really focusing on theory and a lot of psychotherapy training a lot of our systemic training is is was quite heavily theory based you know um to actually experiencing and doing this kind of learning through stories is what they talk about so really kind of bringing the theory alive so so when we are working with people we're not kind of stuck by the jargon of of the language of the theory but we can actually live and we can kind of 
embody some of the spirit of the ideas that we're trying to to learn so he talks about the difference of ethics of practice which i find fascinating and spirits of practice and it was these spirits of practice it was that twist of language um that use of language which kind of opens up opportunities to bring in different types of learning and experience um beyond just kind of like ethics you know like there's a place for ethics but beyond that it kind of opens the, the, the doors for other ways of bringing parts of yourself into your work yeah and I think says what you you're reminding me of now is that thing of ha- which was from our previous conversation of like really how you live your values and how you live your values in the room and even how that leads maybe into creating training or co-creating training with people because there's a lovely bit isn't there at the the last bit of the book is Travis sort of guides you through a, a training that he mm. offered mm-hmm. yeah yeah so There's yeah a lot to take it really is it's a fantastic book um we definitely in- encourage you all to read it I- i'll say the title again it's reimagining narrative therapy through practice stories and ethnography so yeah go out buy the book listen to the podcast share your thoughts and check out travis heath he, he does some fantastic stuff he has been on the podcast before so check out that episode if you haven't listened to it but look him up he's he's, he's a he's a great mind how y'all doing good good what time is it over there 5 p.m on friday gosh you're dedicated this is what you're doing (laughs) is talking to me instead of doing something you know like uh, fun <laughs> wouldn't it, would it be anywhere else travis no exactly <laughs> good where, to see you both yeah good to see you too where where are you uh san diego san diego california oh wow i thought it did look quite sort of californian the background yeah the university has like you know 20 of these uh sort of backgrounds i like this one actually teach in this old building uh this semester that's behind us which is pretty cool i feel like i need to say this before we get into talking about it travis because otherwise i'm just going to be holding on to it the whole way through that i so appreciate that book that that you've written i was saying to cesar just when we were talking about planning for it 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 sort of helped me and well it's helped me it's helping me it's going to help me but it sort of it it I really resonated with things that I think I've been going through recently, feeling like, oh, these things don't land with me. These things don't make sense. What am I doing being a psychotherapist? And then I sort of read the book and I was like, ah, oh, this is, I mean, like in my bones, in the cells of my body, literally. Yeah. I, I mean, last night I could hardly sleep. I was saying to Cesar, I was just thinking about this conversation. So I'm really yeah. looking forward to it, but I'm also just really grateful that it's there because I'm sure I'm not the only person who necessarily feels like that and I'm sure that lots of people I'm sure you've had that feedback from lots of people as well um so thank you I just wanted to get that there because then I can relax into the conversation of it well that means a lot yeah um well we've gotten some decent feedback I yours feels a little bit different um Mm -hmm. it just feels like it um what you said I let me put it this way like five years ago or whenever it was at this point when we started writing it, 
if we could have like flash forward and seen your feedback that you just gave, I think all of us, uh, you know, David, Tom, myself, also all the contributors, I think they would just think that's a fabulous outcome. Like we couldn't, you know, when you said you kind of, uh, feel it in the cells of your being, Mm. like, I can't imagine a better response than that. So that really means a lot. And in some ways, that's what we were hoping for is not so much that people would identify with it intellectually, right. But they'd feel it, um, which is a hard thing to explain, you know, like, um, it's kind of like love or something. How do you know you're in love? I don't know, like the best sort of poets and uh, teenagers and, you know, scientists have tried to understand love and, but you just know it because you feel it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like you truly know it when you feel it. And what you were saying, like with feeling it in the cells of your body sort of thing, like that means a lot. Cause that's what we were aiming for less. I mean, hopefully there's some intellectual meat, but we wanted a little less of that because narrative therapy historically has been so intellectual, which is probably what attracts some folks to it, you know, but also it might benefit from a little more of this visceral sense or whatever mm. it is you might be describing. So yeah, your feedback means a lot. I'll pass it on to to David and to Tom. I know Please. they'll be thrilled by it. Please do. And I know we're going on this journey now of having this conversation, but it, it just like you said, it, it it wasn't just one sort of hit of something physical. It is a physical felt experience throughout the whole book, I think. And it's layered all the way through, you know, times I was like on the edge of my seat. I could feel my heartbeat racing. You know, it's, it really, it really is. And I think that's what makes it different from other books actually that I've read. So um, I'm, yeah, it was great. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It does mean a lot and I'll pass it along. Please do. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Julia, I know you said before we get into it, but I think we've got into it. But yes, Travis, we're here to talk about your book. We haven't even said the title, so that's where we wanted to start. Because obviously, Cesar and I have had the privilege of reading it. You've written it. I'm sure you've read it as well. But people who are listening may or may not have had that experience yet. So to orientate everyone, um, the book is called Reimagining Narrative Therapy Through Practice Stories and Autoethnography. They said that right? Yeah, you got it. I got that's it. A ma- that's a mouthful. <laughs> this is the last word that I stumble across with myself. But I guess... Well, I, the word that I was drawn to when I first saw the title was reimagining, um, the reimagining of narrative mm-hmm. therapy. So I suppose we were interested if that might be a place to start and to understand a little bit of the coming into being of this book. Yeah, um, thanks. Thanks for having me here again. And, and thanks for your, your question. Uh, it's a great way to kick us off. The reimagining part. So, you know, David Epstein, um, ever since I've known him and had the opportunity to work with him, which is getting close to 10 years now, he had this concern about narrative therapy that it would get stale, or maybe that it already was in some ways getting stale, you know? And one of sort of the, the core spirits of narrative therapy that David has always talked about and written about, and certainly since I've known him, is this kind of spirit of adventure, you know, and that narrative therapy was always a great adventure. And, and you know, he had this concern and, and others of us shared it too, but obviously he's been around longer. He's seen this develop over decades that 
you know, some of what was um, written in, in Michael White's maps of narrative practice book was almost becoming like a manual. You know, it, it was, um, and, and, you know, some of this, I don't know, human nature is a big claim. I don't know if it's human nature, but there is this thing that we humans tend to do when somebody dies. And especially maybe when someone dies, maybe earlier than we'd expect, like with Michael White, you know, in his 50s. And um, that this, oh, this is the last great definitive work. You know, this is the work we must follow. And what was interesting is, you know, David had had conversations with Michael, obviously, um, just prior to his death. And and they were going to uh, essentially reimagine narrative therapy. That's what they were going to sit down to do you know, because they were afraid it was becoming a bit stale. Now, of course, if you've read Michael's book, Maps, um, and we cite this in our own book, he explicitly said right at the beginning multiple times, like, look, you sort of have to create your own maps. I'm just showing, I'm giving a map of how I sort of make sense of this practice. You know, you, you don't you don't have to follow me. In fact, I would advise you not to, he basically said, right? You have to create your own maps. Uh, and Michael um Per what David had said, Michael agreed to do that because, you know, narrative was seen as this esoteric practice or this, you know, that Michael was some kind of genius that just did this and no one else understood what the hell he was doing. And so what he was trying to do was essentially show, okay, there is a method to what I'm doing, right? It's not just like individual genius. There's a practice here. And he was trying to demonstrate that, which I think was useful. What maybe wasn't as useful, at least as we saw it, was that you know, in some ways, this was becoming uh, manualized, and folks were practicing narrative in a almost a cookie cutter sort of fashion. And this was this was concerning for us. Um, it had concerned David for some time, and so that's what really got us into the idea of reimagining. And certainly, there's a lot we can take and learn from classical approaches to narrative therapy. We respect those very much. Also, the world changes, people change. I mean, you know, coming out of COVID and the quote unquote racial reckoning. I don't know how much of a reckoning it was, you know, in the summer of 2020 in the United States. Um, you know, it's a different time. And how are, how are our therapies and how are our narrative practices coming to meet this particular time in history? And, you know, um, this isn't like a one reimagining. We imagine that narrative therapy over the years is going to have to reimagine itself a number of different times. And, you know, calling it like narrative practices is something that resonates with me because the practices have to be different, right? They have to be different based on the local and the particular of the people practicing them. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we really wanted to do in the book, and I think we accomplished it relatively well, is show a number of different practitioners doing work that's very different. And yet you can see some threads through, I hope, through all the different stories, you know, that you go like, oh, I see how this is This is all narrative or part of the narrative practices. And also I can see some real differences and I can see ways that the you know, therapist's personalities come out and their cultural contexts come out, et cetera. Um, and that, as near as I can tell, that's when narrative is at its best, right? When, when it's you know, almost in a, a perpetual state of reimagining. Yeah, you, in the book, you talk about the traditional pedagogy of learning narrative therapy but I, I mean psychotherapy in general you know this kind of learning through techniques and and processes and kind of the scaffolding and then you kind of you, 
I guess from the book, you're kind of proposing a new way, a, a new pedagogy around learning narrative therapy. But I, in my head, again, I, I understand it to kind of permeate all types of therapy. And, 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 and yeah, I wonder if you, you wanted to talk a little bit about that, about how, how one narrative therapy fell into that trap. Yeah, I know you mentioned it already a little bit about um, Michael White's passing. Um, but yeah, I guess this the benefits to both as well, I'm, I'm quite interested in. And why there's a need to begin to shift to a different way. Yeah, thanks for that, Cesar. I mean, we've spent a lot of time thinking about this and really practicing it. And this goes all the way back to two plus decades ago when I was a graduate student. And, you know, I, I could I could listen to the lectures on theory. They were interesting, by the way. I love philosophy and theory. It's super interesting, right? So I'd take it in. I'd get an A on the exam. I'd do all the things, right? Like, oh, I must be, I must be really well prepared. But then I'd get into a room with a person in distress, and it wasn't translating. Like, I knew all this theory, almost like an encyclopedia, right? But I didn't know how to translate that theory into practice. Now, I, I experienced this as a grad student, and quite unfortunately, I reproduced it as a teacher for many years, right? Where what really what I was doing was teaching theory. Um, I, I wasn't teaching theory that then was uh, with a direct bridge to practice. You know, I, I was using PowerPoints and showing all the, you know, and testing the students and do they know the philosophies. But, you know, what that leads to at least it did for me, and I've seen uh, this for a number of students over the years, is basically I'm using like narrative therapy jargon in a conversation with someone in distress. You know, I'm saying something like, um, you know, we need to externalize the internalized problem discourse. Like, well, what the hell does that even mean? You know, I, <laughs> a, a, certainly a person sitting across from me doesn't. And so um, part of the new pedagogy was like, gosh, um, it might benefit us if we became not we don't we're not saying don't consume philosophy or anthropology or feminist feminist literature um black abolitionist uh literature um look consume all of that but then at the end of the day our task is to take that and demonstrate how it turns into a practice now the pedagogy that we sort of stumbled upon that was really working for this um, was to share these sort of practice stories, these autoethnographies, right, as, as uh, the last um, word in the book title there. And, and autoethnography, and really what we were trying to do was a particular genre of autoethnography called evocative autoethnography. You know, Art Bachner and Carolyn Ellis wrote a lovely book about that in, I think, 2016 or something like that. Um, I believe the title is Evocative Autoethnography. But we found this to be so useful because what it what it when it's done relatively well, what it does is it takes the person inside of the therapeutic drama. You can um, not just uh, read or think about what's happening, but you can feel it if it's done well. Now, you know, look, I, I've probably written some of these where it wasn't done so well and this didn't happen, but if it's done relatively well, you feel like you're in the room with the people. You feel like you know what the therapist is feeling, what the therapist is thinking, what the therapist is up against. You know, that's part of what we hope comes through in these stories is that, you know, um, you do this long enough or you develop a reputation and people think you're like an expert therapist, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, um, they knew what they were doing all the whole 
time. Oh, they asked this question. They knew, shoot, most of the time I have no idea where it's going. I mean, I have an idea where I have a hypothesis that maybe it'll go here. Often the person I'm in conversation with takes it somewhere better than I could have imagined. But, you know, uh, I don't like this word, but it's a word that gets used a lot. I'll use it for lack of a better one. We have insecurities as therapists, right? We have doubts. Um, we don't, you know, I still have that feeling of when someone comes in, you know, and I leave the first meeting, I'm like, I don't know if I can be helpful at all for this person, right? All of us have this, I think, no matter how long we do this work. And so I, I hope in these stories, you can see some of uh, what the therapy, now let me revise that, you can feel, not see, but you can feel some of what the therapist might be feeling. And going back to the pedagogy, so we started writing some of our early attempts at these autoethnographies, which were okay. I'm not sure they were great. This was maybe like 2015, something like that. And then we would bring these into the classroom. And instead of doing a lecture on narrative therapy, where we'd, you know, here are the key tenets to narrative, you know, like we've all had in the classroom, we just started sharing these stories. Um, my colleague, Tom Carlson, and some of his, uh, some of his colleagues and students wrote this great article. Um, I don't, the titles are always so long, but uh, the, the crux of the title is Learning Narrative Therapy Backwards. And, and this really helps demonstrate some of this pedagogy, which is we start with a story and we just start sharing the story. And then we ask the learners to say, what are you seeing here? If you had to give language to what the processes, the practices that you're seeing, what would you call it? And if people knew narrative, we'd say there's one rule. You can't use any narrative therapy jargon. So you can't say like externalization. That's an example. No, you can't say that, right? It, all, uh, all of this... Um, all of this has to be new language. And, and what happens when we start using new language is we often identify new practices, right, that we may not have noticed before. Um, so then what would happen is people, students would start, you know, going through their training and they're seeing folks that are in distress. And they'd come back in 6, 8, 12, 18 months and they'd say, oh, you know what happened? I read that story and that story found me in a moment when I needed it. Not in a manualized way where it's like, oh, you asked this question and I asked the same question. It's like, no, we were talking, Julie, before the start of the podcast here. People could feel it in like the cells of their being, like the stories found them at the perfect moment where they needed it. And they didn't replicate necessarily the same question, but they found the spirit of the narrative practice that, that sort of invited them into asking the questions they needed to ask the person they were in conversation with at that time. Thanks, Travis. I, I was thinking when you were talking about, um, I suppose, the way words find their way into our mm. culture and then they kind of, the, the value or the meaning of those words and our relationship to those words suddenly um, might become, loses the significance or the meaning or the feeling for us. So there's just something in what you're saying that it is an invitation for us to be alive to that and finding new ways to express. I don't know if I kind of got it right or not, but that's what I heard. I think you got it exactly right in terms of how we've experienced it, Julie. Um, you know, um, I think it was Wittgenstein who said, I, I, I don't know if this is exactly right, but the, the spirit of it's right. He said something like, uh, the limit of my words is the limit of my world. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, I love that quote, because <clears throat> sometimes to 
really capture like as a narrative therapist perhaps like counter stories is something we're interested right finding counter stories to dominant more problematic stories um you know sometimes we need to create new language because people come to us and they may have exhausted all the language that they have to describe something you know and they're pretty easy examples of how language loses its potency I'll give you a phrase here in the United States, and um, I suspect in speaking to some of my friends in the UK that might be similar there, but you, you can tell me if I've got it wrong, but social justice, like I don't even know what the hell that means anymore. Like if every counseling program is a social justice program, then no counseling program is a social justice program, mm -hmm. right? And people just throw that language around. And honestly, I don't even know what it means. I think I know what it meant like 15 years ago maybe even 10 years ago, but now I'm not sure, right? And in the academy, I see, um, you know, and I hear people saying, well, I'm an anti-racist, you know, I'm an anti-racist. And I think that they mean well when they say that. And then, you know, a question I might have for them is, can you tell me an anti-racist practice that you've engaged in, in the last week, two weeks, a month? And usually their response is like, well, I'm an anti-racist. You know? <laughs> and it's like, I hear you saying that. I hear you assuming that as sort of an identity which may not be so great in some ways, but but you don't know what practices coincide with that identity or that way of being. I don't know if we should have an anti-racist be an identity, right? So language loses its potency. The same thing happens, you know, with narrative therapy. Uh, why wouldn't it, right? With any practice, therapeutic or otherwise. And so then the idea of finding new words and co-creating new words, and we'd you know, of course, look, when you're teaching something, you probably need some common language you develop uh, to help know what we're talking about. Also, um, sometimes that common language can be co-created between the facilitator and the learners, right? And what really matters is that for the learners, that that language connects with them in some way and they carry it with them. Um, but if if we use uh, uh, language too rigidly, then we're almost setting ourselves up for, for some kind of manualized practice, right? Even if unwittingly, that's what we're doing because, oh, um, like externalization is, is a, I mean, you know, um, it was a simple concept, but it was a really important foundational concept for narrative, um, narrative, narrative therapy. Um, I don't know, like externalization still is something that uh, is a part of my practice today, but I make sure to, go in more detail about it, right? I don't necessarily use the word externalization, but what I mean is I say like, this isn't a metaphor. Like I actually don't believe that distress lives almost solely inside the physical body of the person. I don't believe that. It's not a metaphor, right? So like when we talk about something like depression, which I found can mean a hundred different things. Um, but once we start to understand what it means for the person, Maybe we wouldn't call it depression anymore, right? The naming rights might perhaps be given to the person, but whatever we call it, like, <laughs> uh, I don't believe that that is almost solely inside the person's physical body. Now, I'm not, I'm not denying that there's biology and there's physiology. I think those things exist. I also think those things are strongly influenced by the external world, right? By the by, by sociology, by you know, the anthropological, um, you know, so 
in that way, we could just say you need to externalize something, which feels almost like if you're not careful, it comes to feel almost like an exercise, like an activity, as opposed to more deeply understanding that, you know, what we're saying is that we don't believe problems reside almost solely inside people's physical bodies, right? And, And when you start to understand it that way, what usually happens is people are like, well, I don't know if I agree with that, which I think is a great outcome, right? Then we can talk about, well, how did you come to not agree with that? Or how'd you come to understand that distress is located almost solely inside one's physical body, right? But do you see the difference? Because if all we said was, oh, externalize the problem, it could feel like, oh, this is a fun little activity. It's a little intervention to get somebody to, but it, but it's not, right? This is actually attached to something more foundational, that if we're not really careful in speaking about this what we do is we just throw out jargon and people take for granted. And this is not their fault. This is my fault as a teacher. If I do this right, people take for granted some of um, uh, what runs a little deeper in the practices. Mm-hmm. Travis, hearing you talk transported me actually to our, when you came, when we met with you last time and there was, there was something in there that's lived with me ever since we met with you that day, that kind of, I think it was a story you shared about your meeting with David Epstein in supervision, where he challenged you in terms of how does this ethic that you talk about show up in your practice? And that that question comes to me almost daily right now, you know, for, for, for a long time. And it's a question I I think I generously offer to other people that I work with as well. Um, it's a really a guiding, bit of a guiding light, actually. Um, and... I'm still on a on a quite a harsh journey with that, to be fair. Don't have quite answers for it. But when I read this book, and there was another another bit of something else in that journey that kind of shed a bit more light when you kind of talk about um the spirits of practice as being a bit of an antidote really to kind of moving away from just manualized approaches, but for that to be to help you pay pay close attention to your practice. So rather than it being, I I work in this way. I I, I think I'm, I, you know, I have these certain ethics and values. How does it show up? And then really trying to think about what are my spirits of practice is now giving me a new, beginning to give me a new language or a way of thinking about it. And I, yeah, I, I, first, oh sorry, sorry, Cesar. Yeah, I don't know if I have a formal question there. Well, I wonder where I'm at to share with you is the, some of the differences between ethics, values, and then this concept of spirits of practice. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Thanks, thanks for the question. Um, first, I'm glad that that question is is following you a bit. You know, the one about uh, you know um, how 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 are these ethics or spirits of practice actually finding their way into your practice? You know, that question stays with me daily as well, and. I don't think it is a question that should feel comfortable. Like it probably that question, if it starts to feel comfortable, probably means we're taking something for granted, you know, because it's so easy to espouse that we are something, right? To make a declaration. Like I am, like I was saying, I'm an anti racist. I'm an anti racist therapist. Like, okay, cool. Like you know the buzzword and you adopted it, but, you know, to really interrogate our practices and find out are our practices actually living up to, our language, right? And for me, I find out often no, which on one hand, that could be really distressing. And I could think, well, I'm a hypocrite or something. 
I don't necessarily think about it that way. Um, I think most people are trying to do as well as they can in their practices. So I don't take it personally. It's more just sort of a, a call to improve my practice, you know, to see, am I living up to the language I'm using? So David was, was really helpful in that. Uh, what, sorry, what was the second part of what you were just saying, Cesar? It was uh, important. The ethics and values and the difference mm, with that yes. spirits. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting because I remember the first time I had a conversation about that, it was, I believe it was 2016. Um, Tom Carlson and I were in Norway. We were presenting at a conference uh, out there. And by the way, Sasha Pilkington, who wrote in the book, she was out there as well at the same conference. And so um, Tom, Tom Carlson, actually, his ancestors hail from Norway. And so he wanted to go uh, drive out into the countryside, like two hours from Trondheim, where we were, to see like if he could locate, you know, his ancestors farm, which that's a hell of a story in itself. We actually found it. You know, um, after like eight hours of driving, it was almost sunset, uh, driving through like the Norwegian countryside and then by these beautiful mountains. Anyway, point being, we had a lot of time to talk right on this drive. And uh, we brought up this exact conversation, the idea of ethics. And we were like, well, we know what that means, but is that really capturing what we're talking about? I mean, ethics feels a bit stuffy, a bit intellectual, academic, you know, um, not that there's not a place for it, but you know, in in the spirit of thinking about the language we're using and does it actually fit or do we need to create new language? We thought ethics really doesn't fit what we're talking about here. And we came up, you know, after going back and forth, it was sort of a co-creation. We came up with this phrase, spirits of practice, which I'm not saying that in itself is like this revolutionary concept. I don't necessarily think it is, but it was important for us because a spirit of practice is something that transcends the intellectual. It's something that's more of a felt sense, right? It's something that can't always be explained academically or intellectually. Uh, again, I go back to what Julie was saying before we got on, you know, the podcast today, which is like, you could feel some of the stories sort of in the cells of your being kind of thing, uh, which was a heck of a compliment. And that's definitely uh, what we've noticed as well. Like, that learning is facilitated by having this felt sense, by feeling something, not just by thinking something. And spirits of practice open up that possibility. The other thing they do is, I mean, I guess you can tailor ethics the way that you want, but ethics oftentimes is a tricky word. It can have multiple meanings. And I think students sometimes feel, not just students, by the way, any of us could, but especially people just coming up in the field, can they can feel confined by what their choices are. And with something like spirits of practice, it opens up possibility. It, op it opens up possibility for them to bring ideas from their own communities, right? That may not have been a part of, I mean, if you say ethics, people are often hesitant to bring in their own kind of local knowledge, right? From their own communities, ancestral knowledge, they're hesitant to bring it in. But if you say spirits of practice, usually that opens up different conversations. We might hear more poetic language, being used, right? We might hear stories being shared as opposed to just, you know, kind of like one word or one small phrase, examples of ethics. Um, so that's been foundational to what we're trying to do because it's it's opened up possibility and it's moved us out of the realm of just the intellectual or it's helped us to anyway. 
I'm sort of, I was thinking of the spirits of practice as, as well. And I think you've started talking in, in this way, Travis, but I was sort of, um, when well, you use the word intellectual, and I suppose I think of it more as sort of a Western approach to psychology. When you when you say that, that there's something in in the spirits of practice that in invites other ways of 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 seeing and other ways of being or healing or whatever, whatever words that we want that we mm. want to use. And then I was sort of curious because there's something in um, the felt sense um, that's that's so important and I think is is always important um but do you do you think that's something that's um obviously in these in these stories in this book it's 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 something that you have you it's one of your intentions for people to experience while they're going through the book um I guess what's my question my question is around do, do you think that the Western sort of psychology or pressure just don't value that enough or in the same way? My experience is that, yes, they do not mm. value that in the same way. Um, there could be a variety of reasons why. Mm. Um, I mean, we could speculate about some of those. I mean, one are sort of these, I think, discourses of uh, professionalism and what it means to be professional, mm. right? Uh, another is like ideas of boundaries and what boundaries are supposed to exist, you know, and that those two bump up against one another, right? We're supposed to hold specific boundaries so that we are professional, right? These ideas, especially these more psychodynamic, psychoanalytic ideas of what the frame of therapy is supposed to be, right? Um, everything's got to exist within this frame, which is an interesting idea. I don't think it's without merit completely. Also, it's a very westernized idea, as you're noting, right, that we must hold a very specific frame and that holding that frame is the only way. Well, they're, they're careful in how they say that these days. They don't say that it's the only way for change to happen. They say it's the only way for real psychotherapy mm. to happen. Right. Um, and I guess I'm not so interested in the work I'm doing uh, being defined as psychotherapy or not psychotherapy. I, I don't really care. Um, what I'm interested in is is uh, what the person I, that's in distress that I'm serving is interested in, right? Sometimes that's healing. Uh, change is a little bit of a tired word, but you know, often they come in in distress in some way. The people we serve, right? Mm. And they're wanting to move someplace else, and I'm interested in trying to support that. Um, if that gets defined as psychotherapy by someone else or some other group, fine. If it doesn't, uh, fine. Uh, actually, that doesn't bother me. And in some ways, I find it to be a compliment. I mean, I've been in some narrative circles and have had people tell me what I'm doing is not real narrative therapy, which um, my response is, I think often they think I might have a defensive response. I honestly don't feel defensive about it. My response is maybe it's not. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not. But again, I'm not so interested in that. I'm not so interested in what it's labeled as, right? And I think, um, you know, to your question, Often it's important for clinicians to feel as though they're accepted within the psycho psychotherapeutic community, right? That what they're doing is 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 uh, appropriate. That what they're doing, um, you know, meets all the conditions of what a real therapist. I'm doing using air quotes. That's no good. Real in quotes. <laughs> what a real therapist should be doing, and I think um, 
Yeah. So something like spirits of, even the word spirits, mm. ooh, yucky, like, no, 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 that, um, that could get associated with religion that could get associated with spirituality. I don't even know what spirituality means by the way, because it means very different things to different people that I speak to about such a word. Right. But even that word, and it's purposeful. I think that's why, um, Tom and I both really like the word because, um, it, it, it opens up possibilities beyond what the field is usually confined to. And moreover, um, if we think about change, healing, whatever, I mean, psychiatry, psychology have been around, you know, a little over a century, whatever it is at this, at this time, 2023, you know, um, century or so. I mean, people have been healing and working through quote unquote change processes, whatever the jargon is we use in the modern world. They've been doing that for as long as there have been people, right? So, um, and, and my intention in saying this is not to diminish psychiatry or psychology. It's really not, but it's more to open up the possibilities of different mm-hmm. ways that people can move through change processes. That's all. Mm-hmm. And I find that um, the language we use there is really important. You know, I, I remember David Epstein um, when I first came into knowing him. He would ask like these wonderfully flowery poetic questions, you know? And I always thought like, ah, that feels over the top to me, you know, I guess he's showing off or something. I didn't know him that well at that Mm -hmm. time, but then, you know, we got a good enough relationship just to where I could ask him and I could be like, David, why do you always ask these flowery questions? And he gave a great answer. One that I wasn't expecting. He goes, well, um, if you ask a boring question, what kind of answer do you think you're going to get probably a boring answer. He goes, yeah. If you ask a beautiful question, if you ask a poetic question, what kind of answer do you think you're more likely to get? And then it clicked. And I was like, oh, like there's, there's something about this. It was not showing off at all, but it was rather opening up possibilities for how one may feel free to respond to a particular question. And when we're already positioned in a highly professional role, I mean, you know, I'm sure y'all notice this. People um, might early on before they know kind of how we operate, they might answer our questions in very medicalized ways, right? You know, whatever they just read on WebMD or whatever it is. But if we ask these questions guided by the spirits of practice that one might have, it opens up new possibilities for how one might respond using new language. And that could make all the difference, right? That could be what opens up a door that... um, could really help get a person where they're hoping to go. Such a beautiful illustration of the relational aspect to questions. Uh, you know, I see it like a relational aesthetic to to question answering and inv- the style of your question allowing a style of response and encouraging a, a a new way and opening up alternatives. Yeah, that's 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 moved my mind. Hearing that, and it made me think as well of just what because you you know in the book and in the on the context at con- contents page sorry it's it's stories even just the use of the the word stories and what that brings in terms of opening up possibilities. Um, I don't know if I should name here if it feels appropriate. You know, there's the you know the introduction to practice stories. Then there's stories in action and a teaching story and you know there's something just about even just using those that that word is very important it is i'm so glad you noticed that 
Yeah, because um, I mean, you know, when we first started writing these before we really knew much about autoethnography, we were calling them case studies. You know, Freud used to write case studies uh, you know, uh, over a century ago. And um, actually, they're really interesting reading them. They're a little different than I might read them, but I've read plenty of them, especially in preparation for our work. Um, but case studies, oof, that didn't feel good. Um, then we started calling them, you know, case stories. I mean, that word's out there. We didn't coin that term, of course. And case stories felt better because it had the word story. But then we moved into calling them practice stories, right? It was essential that the word story be in there um, because it's not a study. I mean, not that one can't study the story, but it's not a study. I mean, a study is done on someone, right? Whereas a story is uh, stories about people, right? It's not on someone. And so it was important that we switch that. And then, you know, autoethnography is sort of the fancy methodological, qualitative methodological way of describing what we're doing in evocative autoethnography. But at their heart, they're stories, right? And and the cool thing about stories is that, I mean, this is that's what we're doing right now. We're telling stories. This is really what we're doing. This is why I think people find uh, podcasts and radio before podcasts so compelling is because we're telling stories and stories are instructive, right? We, we listen to stories because they help um, give us some feeling about our own life, about the lives of others, about possibilities of where we might go and what that might look like for us. And um, stories give us ideas about identities, what identities we can, can assume and which ones we can't, which... You know, not all stories are helpful in that way. But my point is, stories are, as near as I can tell, the seminal methodology that human beings have, right? That it's just what we use to make sense of the world, to understand other people. And, and so for us, that's crucial because that's really what these are. They're stories. They're not case studies. Um, yes, we are using a methodology to pay tribute to Art Bachner and Carolyn Ellis called evocative autoethnography. But I think Art and Carolyn would agree. At their heart, hopefully, they're reasonably well-developed stories that um, kind of sink their teeth into you. And, and if they're doing their job, they follow you, right? And you may not even know they're following you. And if we're really, if the stories are really doing their job, I remember David said, what would happen is you'd see two people walk out of a room and you've never seen these two people before. And you'd be like, oh, those are the two people in the chapter or the story I just read, right, from the book. Like, that's the level of detail. Now, of course, literally, that would probably not happen. But that's what we're aspiring to is that you would feel like you already knew the two people when they walked out. You'd be like, oh, that's the person. And, you know, a lot of these stories, um, we've been told, uh, move people to tears, right? Uh, people, uh, different kinds of tears by the way, um, on different different stories. Uh, but what happens, like with any good story, you become invested in the characters. And this is why narrative therapy and stories for me are, are such a central part of what I do is because when you really get to learn the stories that uh, have come to live people, right, you, you take an interest in the person. That you otherwise you become invested in them. How, how can you not? Like this is why we read a book. This is why we watch a movie. 
right? Anyone that's even halfway decent, we become invested in the characters involved. And if what we're doing is sort of a, a more medicalized description of a person or or even uh, 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 an interaction that's tightly controlled by various frames or whatever, we risk missing particular aspects of the the person's stories. And so I yeah, I'm so glad that you noticed that and it was intentional and and we hope that I mean the chances of this happening are low, of course, but one of our things is like someone could pick up this book. Now they may not want to read the teaching chapter, the their story. That's more for, you know, people that are in the weeds like we are. But just someone, you know, if they happen to find this on their seat on an airplane and they were gonna fly, you know, let's say fly from San Diego to London and you know, they have time to sit down and read these stories. We hope they'd be interesting to anyone, like not not just like people interested in therapy, but someone who has, knows nothing about therapy could read the stories and find some value, could be moved by them in some way. Travis, so I, I really do want us to start talking about that chapter on teaching, actually, because I think that's a, a real essential part of the book and the, the overall message of what comes out for me reading the book. But you just tweaked the real interest, actually, um, about that kind of reading on the plane and reading just re these kind of stories of therapy and psychotherapy. And there was something that really resonated with me when I read the book about your story when you went to the conference, a narrative therapy conference, didn't feel really connected to it, left and was reading um, a book by Irvin Yalom, Dr. Yalom. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it was the Yalom's book that, in in some and how I understood it, how you framed it in the book, which, which triggered this kind of thinking around the, the importance of learning through stories, and in a similar way, that his books were very influential in my journey in becoming a psychotherapist in a very similar way because it I felt like I can actually, it, yeah, I mean I didn't have the language for it, but I feel what it felt like to be a bit mm -hmm. of a psychotherapist. So yeah, I just wanted to ask if you had any comments or thoughts around the influence of his work on your thinking here yeah thank you um you know in graduate school especially when doing a phd i felt like so much of the reading that we did was quantitative studies showing various therapies work which by the way this is important there's a place for this i'm you know i don't think it's bad but when I'm learning to become a therapist, that does nothing for me. Like, you know, I'd go to the discussion section, I'd go anywhere desperate to find an example of what this actually looks like in action. And I could find it nowhere, right? And so what Yalom's books brought was like, the practice came to life a bit. I mean, the way Yalom practices and the way I practice um, might be a little bit different, you know, in some important ways, which is okay. Um, but that's not so much the point. The point is that, oh, I, this I can I can see and feel the practice, right? And so that's what was attractive to me. I also found uh, the work of Oliver Sacks to be useful. I don't know if you've read any Oliver Sacks. I mean, he was a neurologist, but in a lot of ways, I mean, in a lot of ways, I see a lot of narrative therapy sorts of uh, ways of being in practices from Oliver Sacks. But that was basically it, you know. So Yalom's work was formative and. It was formative because of the practice element. Like when I would leave these conferences, I would, they were interesting, 
like I was, I was learning some ideas. I was taking tons of notes, but like I'd go back home and I, uh, they did nothing for my, or very little for my practice. Right. They gave me a lot of ideas about theory, but mostly I left with thinking like, wow, these almost exclusively white men who are presenting, they're a lot smarter than I am. To be honest, that's usually how I left feeling. And I take a bunch of notes and I try to make sense of it, but it also culturally just something wasn't resonating for me, right? It wasn't in a context that I could really make sense of. And so um, now Yalom, maybe they're, you know, I mean, Yalom grew up in in New York, right? Uh, his, his uh, if you haven't read his autobiography, I recommend it. You know, um, his dad ran, I believe it was a liquor store, right? So he'd see like all kinds of interesting people come into this uh, liquor store and, you know, um, our upbringings weren't exactly the same, but after reading some of Yalom's upbringing, I was like, oh, okay, I can get down with this dude. Like, you know, like um, he's met some people, he's had some experiences, right? All people have, I suppose. But, you know, one of the thing of, things about therapists is that I guess it's the professional part. Like the only thing therapists usually share in a book or whatever they're doing is like where they got their degrees from. You know, sometimes they share something like if they have kids or something like that, or that here's a hobby they like to do. Okay. But they don't really share anything about like who they are and their experiences, uh, their ancestors, how they've come to understand the world and, and thereby how they've come to understand how they work with people in distress, you know? And with Yalom, I could always just get a sense that there was more of a full person there, the way that he was sharing this. And I, I think, I think that's essential, actually, because if if it's just like an intellectual on a stage who says like all of these things and is really smart, that's cool. That's a skill. But I'm not sure how that how much that helps in terms of practice, you know. So one of the things David Epstein has always said is, and this was hard for me at first, um, you know, the first autoethnographic attempt I had was the spitting truth articles in journal systemic therapies, uh, spitting truth from my soul. And there's some kind of, it's a two part thing. There's some kind of a subtitle. And I had become so indoctrinated in the ways of academic writing that, you know, it took David saying like, no, what you're doing is telling don't tell show. And that's really all he said. And I sat with that for like a week and I was like, what the hell does that even mean? I'm writing like, you know, I couldn't, uh, I was so indoctrinated in the ways of academic writing, which when you're doing a PhD and writing a dissertation, I mean, your survival depends on it in so many ways, right? But that was my first step in, in breaking free. And when it clicked, it clicked. I was like, oh, show. And well, this is the way I used to write, you know, when I was uh, writing in, in high school or undergrad before I got into the sort of APA style, psychological style, scientific style of writing. And so um, once once that clicked, then it was easier to try and, uh, you know, do this autoethnographic style. But if Yalom hadn't been around, uh, if he hadn't written these things, um, I, you know, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, I would have been left watching some videos. Granted, there are some good real videos out there. But you watch these like role play videos that are just horrible, you know, like they're trying hard, but it just it can't match like real human beings, you know. Or you're reading quantitative research that doesn't really teach you how to engage in the practice. Um, and I just felt lost, you know, in that way. I think um, 
you know, Yalom, Yalom made me feel like maybe, maybe I could be in this field. <laughs> maybe there's a place for someone like me in this field. And then, you know, Oliver Sacks, David, I came across later on David Epstein, Michael White, you know, some of their writings, et cetera. Um, Makungu Akinyela, you know, someone I came across in the early parts of the 2000s. Um, his work was really important to, to, you know, what I've come to understand as narrative therapy. So there were folks out there, but when you're a student and you're, you know, you're kind of looking for something to grasp onto. And I think lots of us are wondering, especially if we have minoritized identities, we're wondering, do we fit in at all? Is there a place here for me? You know, and we're trying to look for something and experience something that says, oh, I I could do this too. Hmm. Thanks, Travis. I I was wondering if now is a good point, actually, um, in our conversation to to mention, of course, that there are other contributors um, to your book, so there's, you know, your there's a there's a there's a group of people who who have also written and and shared their stories. Um, and just to take a moment, I suppose, to acknowledge that. And and I was interested how 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 did you get those stories and how did you choose those stories to to be part of the book and what was the process? Yeah. Uh... Thank you so much for for that. Yeah, wonderful people. So, um, you know, David Epstein and Tom Carlson are co-editors of the book with myself, right? And then, so they both wrote stories. And then um, Kay uh, Ingemels and uh, Sasha Pilkington are both from New Zealand. They've known David for some time. Uh, and then, you know, um, Tom and I have come into knowing them quite well, too, uh, really veteran narrative therapists and also have been writing, quote unquote, autoethnography since before we knew that there was a thing called autoethnography. Right. So um, they've been writing these kinds of stories uh, longer than I have been, for sure. And so f- to invite them, that was kind of a a no brainer. And then uh, Sunny Palyaka is from Calgary. Well, she's originally from uh, Finland, but she lives in Calgary up in uh, Canada, just north of us. And um, her practice is, it's fierce. It's political. You know, she, what, what's the title of her? Uh, something like the malice of patriarchy or something like this, right? Is it the yeah. uh, patriarchal malice? Yeah. What a phrase. Um, you know, something Sunny and some of her cohorts up in Calgary do is, um, Traditionally, narrative therapy would often write therapeutic letters at the end of sessions. They write poems mm. uh, that they give to the client based on the language that the client has used. So, you know, uh, her writing is 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 fierce. And so Tom's known her for some time. I was up in Calgary uh, just before COVID and got to meet with um, uh, some of their collective up there. And so, you know, for us, uh, it wasn't hard at all because we already knew some folks that were writers and that would be interested in in sharing their work. And really the our consideration was, is there enough variability amongst our practices? You know, because mm-hmm. actually, to be honest, um, and who am I to critique Yalom? But you know, the one thing about those books is they're all Yalom. You know, like at a certain point, like okay, like I have a sense of how he does this, which is useful and helpful, but like, what about someone else? Even if it was another existential sort of therapist, fine. Um, so one thing we wanted to do was, um, 
you know, fine people, of course, are interested in this style of writing and all that. Um, but also people that work is quite different in certain ways, but similar enough that you can see that it's part of what makes uh, or what, what comes under the umbrella of what we call narrative therapy. Um, one other thing I would say is we wanted to, as much as we could, you know, sh show um, different different people in distress. So it's not just about the therapist, but it's also about the people we're serving. So Tom wrote about working with a couple, you know. Um, Kay and Gamels wrote about working with a young person, a young person who was struggling with disordered eating uh, that you normally wouldn't see, you know, at that age. And then Sasha is working with, um, you know, folks in hospice, folks who are uh, uh, moving towards death, right? And then, of course, um, you know, David wrote about moms. I think his chapter was Mother Appreciation Parties, which is classic. Uh, David, one of one of the uh, his great stories that I've heard. And then, you know, uh, for the for the story I wrote, it was about me working with someone who was a Trump supporter, and I'm not a Trump supporter. And it was right after Trump got elected, and you know, it kind of gets at this idea of. Like I hear a lot that, you know, like politics aren't um, can't can't be a part of the therapy room, which is amusing because the very act of therapy is a political act. But often when we talk about politics, they think of party politics, which isn't exactly the same thing I mean sometimes when I talk about the politics of therapy. But nevertheless, this idea that somehow we can't talk about something like politics or religion, as it turned out, as that conversation uh, moved move through, um, you know, we talk some about religion and other things where we, where myself and the person I'm working with had, you know, different experiences. And then, you know, the last, uh, you mentioned a little bit of this, the last section was just a workshop, a teaching workshop. So basically it's the type of workshop like we would facilitate, but we wrote it up as a story, you know, so instead of like, to try to stay true to the pedagogy, right? Instead of talking about how we might teach it, we actually wrote a story. Um, I wrote that particular story about, you know, how I had taught this so that if someone wanted to teach it, they might be able to learn in the same way you might learn from the therapist. So that's kind of how, how we uh, came to this. And, you know, we'd be interested certainly in writing more of these at some point, uh, you know, down the road. And, uh, getting more stories, different stories, other other folks to share theirs, because um, one of the things I think it does is it shows the versatility of narrative practices. And in that way, that's sort of an anti-manualized act, right? To show whatever it was in this book, six different therapists, whatever it was, all practicing narrative, narrative spirits in various ways, but in their own ways, right? In their own uh, culturally... Uh, in their own cultural contexts, right, uh, with with you know people with with various forms of distress, and so hopefully it shows that versatility, and it's a little bit of an anti-manualized uh, approach in that way. Travis, um, a word that stuck out for me when I was reading, particularly the teaching story aspect, was brave bravery, and I'll, I'll try and explain that a little bit because. Mm. Um, the concept of working in a clinical setting in a therapeutic space with, with someone and that being mm. a co-constructed collaborative approach um, very much sp speaks to me. And I guess in our training that Julie and I have done as systemic family therapists is, 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 is um, 
is spoken to us, you know, and I, I can begin to find a way to feel, I don't know about comfortable, but value in that. But to bring that into a teaching space, to say we're going to collaboratively construct this together, um, I found it such, um, I mean, I find the concept quite scary. And I find, I find the, the, the story that you told about it and the insights that you gave us very brave. And there's an analogy that comes to mind, and you might have to bear with me here a little bit. It's, um, I don't know if you're a boxing fan at all, Travis. Um, but, but, but I, know, I know a little bit about it. Yeah. I know a little bit about boxing, enough to be dangerous. It's a, there was a boxer who was very famous in, in UK called Nassim Hamid. Prince Nassim Hamid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And um, he's famous for, he was kind of like an anti-boxing fundamentals. You know, he he didn't really have any of those kind of fundamentals and he was all about creativity, reflex, flamboyancy, essentially creativity. And he had great success, but there was always this kind of undercurrent criticism that he doesn't have the boxing fundamentals. And there was always this story that he's going to get tripped up one day when he comes across someone who's very sound boxing fundamentals. And that's what happened to him. He met a Mexican boxer, Barrera, who then beat him. And the story was because he didn't have these fundamentals. And I don't know why that story came to me, but it made me think about when you're, when you're teaching something like narrative therapy or therapy, and I, you, you said the words key tenants earlier, and I'm, I was seeing... I guess I was previously seeing key tenets as boxing fundamentals. So the key tenets of what narrative therapy are. And and I I always felt like you kind of need to develop those fundamentals in a way to then be able to be creative, to be, to find your own way, your own voice. And I don't know if I'm just indoctrinated in that. And in further hearing you talk, I'm beginning to question if maybe the key tenets are the spirits of of practice that we're thinking about. But yeah, I just wanted to know where that landed with you and where that took you. Oh, I love that. Um, thanks for uh, the boxing metaphor. That also reminds me of musicians um, that I've worked with, uh, you know, in therapy. And uh, some of the best musicians I've worked with don't know how to read sheet music, mm. but they're amazing musicians and they play through feel, right? Now, that doesn't mean they don't have any fundamentals. They develop them somewhere, but they may have developed the fundamentals differently. Now, I don't know enough about boxing to, to you know, say, but even the idea uh, that he didn't have fundamentals, like maybe, maybe, um, maybe he had different fundamentals. I mean, I bet it came from somewhere. I bet there was a fundamental base. Now, someone could argue that fundamental base was better or worse, you know, but I bet I bet uh, if we looked and if I knew enough about boxing, we could find that there were some fundamentals there. Um, it's an interesting question because, and I don't know if it's brave or not to, to teach uh, the way that I have been or to facilitate the way that I have been. Um, but, but what I was noticing is that perhaps... Um, there was a little bit too much leaning on the fundamentals of things, you know, Um, to to the point that then the fundamental people felt trapped by these sort of fun. What I mean is the fundamental skills of like listening and reflecting, right. Uh, Active listening, empathy. I'm not denying that any of these are important. And in fact, I imagine if you looked at some of these basic skills that the common factors research says is really important, 
someone that studied common factors, I bet you they could look at these stories and identify common mm -hmm. factors in all those stories. I don't deny that those exist. Um, what, what I'm interested in, though, is like, how do we go beyond that? Um, I think there are things that go beyond. I, I don't know that that the common factors alone can take people places that, um, you know, not just narrative, there could be other ways of working, but when we, when we move beyond the common factors, there might be additional possibilities that open up for people. Like common factors can be healing, but what I'm saying is I wonder if they only take people to a certain point, right? And then how, how might we collaborate with people to move beyond where the common factors would take us? Uh, in terms of teaching, um, like the department I'm in now at San Diego State, uh, the Department of Counseling and School Psychology, uh, I have quite a number of colleagues who don't bring a syllabus to class the first day. They write the syllabus with the students wow. on the first day. Um, we have a, a program called the Community-Based Block, and uh, it's a master's program, sort of community counseling kind of program. I mean, this is what they do. They go on a retreat, and they're like, what do you all want to learn? You know? And they put the curriculum together with the students. Um, I know some of our school psych professors that, you know, they show up the first day with students and they write the syllabus together. So I think um, I think any of us could risk being a little too locked into traditional pedagogies that can be limiting in certain ways. Um, you know, there are uh, fundamentals that show up in how I facilitate now, but they're often in the form of stories. You know, for example, a place to start with narrative is be careful of the stories you tell about yourself and that others tell about you because eventually they'll live you. I mean, that's a classic uh, sort of line I've heard from a number of different narrative folks over the years. It's a great place to start, you know? Um, now it's not a technique, right? Um, but it's, it's a conceptual place to start. And I've used that as a starting point before, as an entry point, right? When I use that entry point, I have no idea where it's going to go, where people are going to take it. I have noticed that in United States, for example, uh, more Western countries where I've taught, um, you know, there is uh, uh, a tendency to fixate on the first part of that. Be careful of the stories you tell about yourself because we're such an individualist culture. You know, people say, oh, self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, well, that's part of it. Yeah. And then, you know, like when I was teaching in Mumbai, they focus much more on the second part of that, the stories that others tell about you, right? Um, which all of that is interesting. So, so you never know where that will go. But I think there are uh, quick stories and things like that that can, can sort of be foundational. Um, so, you know, um, there's a balance, of course. Like I, I, uh, some of it is like reading the room. You know, how much experience do people have with narrative? Um, I haven't read that chapter in the book for a while. Editing that chapter was fierce. I sort of um, was done with that chapter, you know, by the time we did all the editing and everything. But, um, you know, I think there were some people, if I'm remembering the story correctly, there were some people in that workshop who had some narrative experience, you know. And that, you know, the jumping off point's a little different than if you were you know, in a room with people who, uh, let's say, first-year master students who had never done any sort of therapeutic work before. But even with them, I'm not saying that we should then resort to like this PowerPoint, you know, version of indoctrinating people into fundamentals. I just think, you know, um, uh, the scaffolding might just look a little bit different. 
Yeah, it's, it's very liberating to hear you talking that way and, and a lot of self-reflection on my own teaching style. But I'm still quite new to teaching and I guess there's some comfort in those PowerPoint <laughs> style lectures that as I'm oh, away from it, oh, yes. I feel more invigorated though. You know, I feel much more alive in lectures when I'm not so PowerPoint heavy. Uh, absolutely. And um, like you said, brave earlier, I don't know if it's brave, but it is scary. Like I taught with PowerPoints exclusively for 10, 12 years, like um, whether it was a workshop or whether it was a, you know, my classroom teaching always with PowerPoint. And boy, I started with like 50 power. Yeah, I started with more than a reasonable person could ever cover, you know, in an hour or whatever the hell, you know, my an hour and 15 minutes, whatever we had at, you know, at the university. Um, and then, you know, the way that that happened for me says there was over time, I started cutting down the PowerPoints. Right. And then I just got to a point where, you know, we were talking about language running its course earlier, you know, like social justice. What does that even mean anymore? We have to create new language. I sort of feel like pedagogy can follow a similar pattern, whereas students got so used to PowerPoints that it, they PowerPoints just rocked them to sleep. And, and you know, um, uh, of course, you know, how engaging is the instructor? All that plays a role. Students have told me, you know, I'm relatively engaging and all that stuff um, and, and interactive and so forth. But I still noticed that the PowerPoints, it would just sort of rock them to sleep. There was this comfort. And I was like, you know what? I, I want to disrupt this some. So I stopped teaching with PowerPoints. Like, I mean, I still have a PowerPoint sometimes when I need a graph, you know, or there's a, a picture I want to show. You know, it's easiest to do that on a PowerPoint. Um, so they do make an appearance occasionally, but um, they're not like slides, clicking through slides the entire time. And some classes, um, depending on what the class is, they'd never be there because I may not need a graph to show a graph or something like this. And it was, you know, I, I like titrated off of PowerPoints uh, over time and it was scary. But in about, I think it was about 2019, 2018, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to try something different here. And um, it's gone all right. It's gone pretty well, but it was definitely scary. Uh, but it, again, it, it opens up possibility, I guess. Something I do, whether it's with therapy or otherwise, is start to think like, how is what I'm doing getting stale? We talked about reimagining, you know, and reimagining is a, that's a big word that could mean a lot of different things, you know, but for me, reimagining is often not this huge act. It's like a million tiny acts, you know, reimagining is like, you know what? I use 50 PowerPoints. That's way too many. I'm going to use 30. Now, is that, a, a, is that a reimagination in itself? No, but it's a step towards reimagining, right? And taking a lot of little steps eventually got me to a point where I'm not teaching with PowerPoints anymore, which isn't necessarily in itself good or bad. But I, what, what I'm trying to do is avoid being stale, becoming stale, right? I don't want the practice of teaching or the practice of therapy, the practice of being a parent, you know, whatever it is I'm doing, I'm trying not to become stale. And I notice I think this is probably a human tendency, but I'll speak for myself. I notice that if I'm not careful, I get sort of seduced into becoming stale because I'm like, oh, it's working. The students like me. I get good reviews. I could just do this the rest of my career. And that's probably true. But like, uh, one, where's the fun in that? I get bored easy. And two, like, you know, do I have some responsibility to push the limits of this? Um, maybe I don't. I don't know. Maybe it's not a responsibility. Maybe it's something different. Um, but I feel like if we're not willing to do that, 
especially in the modern world where things can get so comfortable, we could easily just do the same thing uh, for the rest of our career, you know? And academia, I think, historically has been criticized for that, right? P students will say, oh, so-and-so, and we got to be careful because this could run against uh, sort of an ageist critique as well. But people will say, oh, so-and-so is 70 years old and they're doing the same thing that they did in 1990, you know? And there probably is something to people have wisdom. I'm not 70 years old, right? I'm 43. But I imagine as we're getting, we have wisdom and we don't want to deny the wisdom that folks have. And also, if we're not careful, I think that can be a valid critique, right? That, and in the academy, it happens all the time. I am uh, told anyway, I look around and I don't see my colleagues doing this, but I'm told this, this is like an almost caricature of a critique in academia, right? The 70 year old dude who's doing the same thing that they did mm -hmm. when well, they were 40. So I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a responsibility, but I feel like it, it's it's something well worth doing. And I don't know if it's brave either, but it's scary. Yeah, I think when I, I guess maybe when I when I hear about when you're talking about PowerPoints and says it when you were sharing this, this story about um, Prince Nassim, I get taken back to myself as a child and stories and I used to love writing like I used to love writing and I think I used to write and they weren't they weren't all imagination like some of them was my way of just processing what was going on you know around me and putting it down and and when I I suppose when when yeah when I was reading the book when I was reading the book it 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 took me back to the power of writing a story I suppose which is different from doing a powerpoint presentation and just and and i and i guess when we th when we think about there's a sort of a reimagining of what for me i was thinking a reimagining of writing a story now in where i'm at and my identity now and my professional role or whatever what what would it be like for me to sort of think of my practice in terms of writing a story but that also just takes me back to that child like that childness that still lives in me, but also not just in me, but that's also in the people we work with. And so, because there's, I was thinking, I don't know if I'm making sense, but there's me writing the story and breaking down the process and understanding my practice, but also really understanding that the people opposite you are telling you stories and they're, they're really important moving valuable stories that keeps you alive in the whole process and yes. this it's the humanness I suppose is the word that I really got mm. when I read the, mm. the teaching bit is that it felt so human and there's something about powerpoints where you said rocking to sleep that can take us away from that fundamental humanness that's the fundamentals I bet that's what I was thinking when Cez was talking sorry Travis I interrupted no 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 problem I'm really excited by what you're saying I think um I've often thought about how do we um, restore a bit more of the humanity to therapy? How do we restore more of the humanity to teaching and learning? Mm. Um, I think these are questions worth wrestling with. And no matter what stories are be like, when we're thinking about the people we serve in a therapeutic context, stories are being told about folks, right? Whether they're medicalized stories, whether they're psychologized stories, whether they're therapized stories, um, whether they're stories from the person or, um, you know, from the person's community, um, from people with power in the community or people with less power in the community, which could, you know, tell us which stories race to prominence and which don't. But no matter what, 
we are telling stories about people. I was I was doing this um, talk in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, last week, and it, you know it was about this kind of thing: stories and narrative therapy. I think I was talking about like sort of um, ways in which we might work with capitalist exhaustion and therapy. You know, anyway, the way I was introduced it was actually by one of my old undergraduate uh, professors. It was lovely, and she had mentioned, you know, like well. You know, Travis has moved on to this new position at San Diego State, and he's the chair of the department. She said all of these nice things. And when I was talking about the importance of stories, I said to the group, um, I said, well, what if what if she would have come forward and she would have said, Travis has changed jobs three times in the last three years? Like through a capitalist lens, how would you look differently at what's transpired versus the story she told? which was much more of an upward trajectory. And I'm doing these interesting and important things. Now, um, both of those are stories. Uh, and and both of them are being told in some way through a late capitalist lens, really, a lens of neoliberalism. Um, there's all kinds of other stories that aren't being told. It's all, it's all focused on my career there, which maybe it should be. They're introducing me to an audience. But my point in sharing that with them was just to say, look at how just the way that the story is told could completely change how you might view me. Because when I said the three jobs in three years, things, everybody chuckled, you know, mm-hmm. and they chuckle for a reason because they get that. And, and so whether we realize it or not, we are telling stories about people. People are stor- telling stories about themselves. Um, certain disciplines are telling stories about people. And so then if that's the case, it's a matter of thinking about, well, what are the kinds of stories that, uh, people might prefer to have told about them. Mm. And in what ways are we going to tell beautiful stories of people? Um, are we going to tell uh, uh, stories of people that position them as uh, I don't really like the hero narrative so much, but, you know, I'm um, really supporting everything they've been through and everything they've stood up against in their lives. Or, or are we going to tell pathologizing stories about people? Are we going to tell boring neutral stories about people that miss so much of what make them interesting? I mean, there's so much to be said there. You were mentioning children too, Julie. Children, they tell, often adults get bored by children's stories. Um, and I think one of the reasons why is because like I have a six-year-old who's going on seven, you know, and you say, well, she tells long stories. Yeah, she does, but she tells them with her heart, you know. Mm. They're, um, they're these stories that sort of just emerge out of out of her her little heart and actually her heart's quite big uh compared to her body i suppose but um and and as adults we don't you know we tend to get away from telling those kinds of stories and um to our detriment i think uh, so there is something about tapping into that like childlike have you ever met a child who doesn't tell stories now people will go well those stories aren't always true that's not so much the point the point is the way they go about telling the story, right? There's just something enthusiastic and beautiful about the story. Even if you know that there are parts of the story that aren't true, the way that children are storytellers, I think there there's a lot to learn uh, from them. And I think that's what I saw and read in the in the teaching workshop. The participants, they began throughout the process. That's exactly it. They were talking from their heart mm. all of a sudden. And and you really, you know, you, you could really feel it, couldn't you? And see it, Cesar. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it was the same for you when you were reading it. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And drawing attention to that seemed like a very helpful process 
as well. I think the people being aware that they were now speaking from the heart and the questions then being much more useful. Heart talk versus head talk, right? Like uh, therapy traditionally has been very good at talking from the head intellectually, not so good at talking from the heart often, right? I mean, um, even the word feelings doesn't capture it. Even if we're talking about feelings, we could be talking about feelings from the head, right? But I, I have noticed when people are granted a space um, for it, people will talk from the heart. You know, even therapists who I think we get well trained out of uh, speaking from the heart as though that's dangerous or something. Uh, quite the contrary, I've experienced. Um, but, you know, like anything, what what we till the soil for, we usually get. Right. And if we till the soil for, you know, speaking from the head, then then that's probably what we'll get. And again, that's not to say there's no value from that. Mm -hmm. um, also, what value would we get from? Uh, heart talk as well mm -hmm. similar way in a, a poetic question can invite a poetic answer heart talk could invite Absolutely. heart responses travis um we we always try to kind of end with some questions around hopes for the future mm. and um i i wonder if this way of learning and this kind of pe pedagogy of understanding narrative therapy it there seems to be a an obvious fit, obviously, with the kind of epistemology and ontology, with stories within narrative therapy. You know, there's a there's a clear fit, and I'm wondering if there's been responses outside of the kind of narrative field, or if there's hopes that other kind of approaches might be able to take some real kind of important learning from this this new. Well, I, I also don't want to say new way because I think there's a word that you used rediscovering which was quite important yes. actually. So this kind of yes. reverse engineering stuff that you're highlighting. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I've definitely, like even just thinking about when I was in Albuquerque last week, there was someone who um, he's like in addiction studies or something, um, you know, talking about how he identified with this sort of reverse engineering of things. And it made a lot of sense, you know, I think I think there is possibility beyond just uh, narrative therapy for some of these ideas. Um, I also think some of the ideas in our field, uh, this sort of field of therapy, if we want to call it that, are predicated on not doing some of this stuff, you know. Um, and so it would require a pretty big paradigm shift in in some ways. And you know, um, I also want to say not everyone has to do therapy the way that we are. I mean. You know, I don't think there's any requirement to do that. And in some ways, um, you know, maybe that's what we need. We need like uh, robust and varied approaches, you know. So I, I certainly don't want to, my goal is not to convince everyone to do this kind of work. My goal is more that people who might have interest in it, that it would be available and they could find it, right? And they would say, this is a fit for me. Uh, I think so much of this is finding, like I watched this, um, this discourse around uh, a lot of it centering in the UK, it seems around like anti-psychiatry movements and this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, sometimes that discourse goes a little too far for my liking, because I'm thinking like um, my goal wouldn't be to like, for example, abolish psychiatry. I think psychiatry has served some people well. Now, if you're talking about reimagining psychiatry, that would be more interesting to me. 
but I don't know about uh, abolishing it uh, necessarily. I, I think that maybe goes too far, but I, I don't know. But my point is more that, you know, that there be this sort of work available for those who are attracted to it. And for, and, and that for those who, if they don't find this kind of work, they don't feel like they could stay in the field. They don't feel like there'd be a place in the field for them, you know, rather than like arguing over which of these is best or, you know, um, when I was at uh, in Albuquerque last week, uh, Bill Miller was there. He um, spoke right after me. Um, you know, he's uh, helped co-create motivational interviewing. And so, um, you know, we had a really nice conversation about some of the similarities in our work and also some of the differences. He's 75 years old and I've never met him before, but those kind of conversations, I love those. They're super fascinating for me because um, it really wasn't a conversation about like, let's fight over if narrative therapy is better, if motivational interviewing is better, but more so like, what are we doing that's similar? What are we doing that's different? Uh, talking about teaching, what has he noticed is, is helpful when he's teaching motivational interviewing? What, are, what am I noticing that's helpful? And so I find those kinds of conversations really generative. Um, but I, to be honest, if, if the therapeutic landscape became all narrative therapy, the way that we're proposing, uh, doing it now, uh, practicing it and teaching it, uh, I, I would probably move in a different direction at that point because, um, it would be like, okay, this is probably running its course. We've got plenty of people doing this now. Great. Maybe it's helpful, but this isn't going to work forever. Like nothing works forever, right? If we know anything about humanity and human beings, it's that things change and shift. And so this will change and shift too, and it'll change and shift long after I'm gone. And if there's any sort of legacy from this book, I hope it's that, um, sure, people may find value in it right now in the work they're doing. That would be amazing, you know? Um, that would be great. Also, I hope it uh, sort of invites a spirit of reimagination among folks that, you know, long after I'm gone, that someone picks this up and goes like, well, when I look at my context and the people I'm serving and what's going on in our communities, like, what if we took this, but we thought about it this way, right? Um, that spirit of adventure again, you know, what if we reimagined it in this way, you know, and well, let's go that way and see what happens. That's what I've always felt from David uh, Epstein. And so um, that feeling I think is, is, become central to how I think about this work. So if if this book is helpful for people now, great. If it's also helpful, even if people aren't interested in narrative or whatever, but they think about ways that they may begin the a million little reimagination steps towards something, because you know, otherwise it's too big. People go, like in the United States, they go, well, we can't reimagine policing. That's impossible. We can't reimagine public safety. And I'm like, well, yeah, if we're going to wake up tomorrow and expect it to be reimagined, no, no, we can't. But we can take a million little steps, right? Uh, Mariam Kaba talks about like non-reformist reforms, you know, that can move us in that direction. Um, so I think the act of reimagining is 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 one that's in some ways is never ending, you know? I mean, I don't know, do we ever just get to the place and we're like, oh, like, you know, mm -hmm. this book doesn't represent narrative therapy reimagined. Right. It, it's it's the reimagining, the continued reimagining. And the hope is that the folks who pick up the book, like they're going to take this into their communities and they're going to keep going with it. Like we're, we're just sort of inviting them to step in the door. You know, and what we hope is that y'all take it and you do you do it. And then you report back to us and you're like, hey, we're moving in these directions or we found this was where we built off of this and we got over here. You know, like that would be the best uh, one of the best outcomes we could hope for.
Thank you, Travis. I think, I don't know, there's so many questions and Cesar, I know often you kind of want to ask another, but I, I feel like that reimagining and leaving us with that is, and I noticed actually it's because it's slightly a kind of question in some way, Travis, and I know from reading the book that's that's a that's something that you do. So maybe that's a good place for us to leave it today. Uh, that sounds lovely. I really appreciate um, the invitation. Uh, I, I love this this conversation and has me thinking about the book again and and thinking about you know possibilities going forward. And uh, the two of you have been uh, so kind in your interest and you know the questions that you have. And so all of that uh, means a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much, Travis. Such an honor. And yeah, wish you the best. Yeah. Uh, Thanks. Likewise. Next time I'm uh, in London, we're going to have to get together. Please, please do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I hope it's soon. Although San Diego looks so good. (laughs) That sunshine. You should go there. (laughs) I know. Maybe. If you find yourselves out here, make sure you reach out. And it's not bad. You could go worse places. San Diego's pretty good.